Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers. The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring do in their mission to capture sound. These people ultimately changed the way that we listen and, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, Let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh, I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust. I wouldn't consider either as particularly gramophone geeks or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg, who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> So why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast uh, music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo. This is The Sound of the Hound. Hello, welcome to another uh, podcast from The Sound of the Hound. I'm Dave Holly. I'm James Hall. Today is actually uh, the first of two episodes on the same subject. We're going to spend a bit of time talking about the gramophone company's first recording trips to Russia at the very end of the 19th century and beginning of 20th century. I think you've got a background piece for us so that people understand the context a little bit. Yes, so here we are. So we're in 1899. Fred Geisberg and Sinclair Darby, our heroes, they'd been on a, on a recording trip or two to Europe. They'd been all over the shop, Madrid, Paris, Vienna, Milan, Budapest... And then they come back and done a tour of the UK and Ireland. So Glasgow, Dublin, Cardiff. They got back in London at the end of 1899, back to Covent Garden. And their boss, William Barry Owen, was not satisfied with what they'd captured. Wasn't good enough. So they're, uh, they're recording in all these places. Yeah, they're going around, they, yeah. they're capturing. I mean, I hate sound, to, to, to sound cliche, they're bagpipe players in Glasgow and opera singers in, in Vienna. Um, but it's kind of substandard. There's no, there's no hit. Um, so they're under a bit of pressure to deliver. Um, so we're back in London. Two things happened in Fred's life. One, he was given over dinner with, uh, with William Barryon at his house a thousand shares in the gramophone company, uh, presumably as a sort of incentive to do better. Secondly, he'd broken off his engagement to a Miss Hall due to her trying to force him into a speedy marriage. So he started, in his words, living the life of a typical London bachelor. Related to you in any way? <laughs> Possibly, who knows? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Um, and so he's out. He's out in the town, gadding about, being Fred. But he was probably, these two things, that, the fact that they're under pressure at work and the fact that he was, uh, he'd broken off an engagement, he was probably feeling a bit gung-ho, a bit pissed off with life, desperate to prove himself. Uh, something of a coiled spring, perhaps. Yeah. So it's a, with this background 
that they decided to head to Russia. Yeah, they get they get sent off to Russia in in the spring. I, I, spring I, of nineteen ninety. Yeah, and I've got so William Sinclair Darby, who's the the the, the very eminent sidekick of Fred Geisberg, both young men in their twenties. He's in Berlin at this point, and Geisberg leaves on the second of March nineteen hundred to Berlin. Takes him a week, and on the se- uh, just under a week, and then on the seventh of March, you meet they meet at the station in Berlin to get the train across to St. Petersburg. I have to say, recording, re- researching this, I found out that this wasn't uh, Sinclair Darby's first trip to Russia. He'd been before? He'd been before, yeah. He'd, and it's, it's quite an interesting one because we have to talk a little bit about how the gramophone company was set up because basically the, the gramophone company of America was set up by Berliner who invented the gramophone and the, the discs. And then he sold the rights to exploit that technology to the gramophone company in England, which he didn't own, shareholders in England owned, and they bought rights to certain markets, including okay. Russia. He set up a second company in Germany called Deutsche Gramophone, who manufactured r- gramophone players and did some pressing of gramophone records for the UK gramophone company. Okay. The UK Gramophone Company owned the rights for all of Europe and beyond into Asia. Deutsche Gramophone had no rights in that territory, and neither did the Gramophone Company of America. The Gramophone Company of America is owned and run by Emil Berliner. Yeah. Deutsche Gramophone is owned by his cousin, Joseph Berliner. Joe Berliner. Sinkle Darby gets sent over initially to work for Joe Berliner in Deutsche Gramophone, and he sends Sinkle Darby into Russia. Before this? Before this. Right. This is in the spring of 1899. Sinclair Darby's just arrived in, in Europe. Right. He goes to Hanover, not London. He works for Joseph Berliner. Joseph Berliner sends him with his recording equipment to Russia, so which is one of the massive music yeah, markets yeah, of yeah, the day. And he goes and makes some recordings. Not particularly successful. Yeah. 243 recordings he makes in, in about a month. So Fred saying that he was, the f- you know, claiming or suggesting he was the first to kind of record in Russia. That's not true. That's not true. And and you can go back through. There's there's um, Dr. Kelly, who's one of the great. What are they called? Discologists, discographers, discographers. discographers. Yeah. He's researched all this from material that's in the EMI archive, and he's shown that Sinclair Darby was was there. The interesting thing, though, he was there not representing the gramophone company. He was rep- he yeah. was, and. This was discovered by the UK Gramophone Company's representative in Hanover, who goes into a room of the factory and finds they're printing records without the Gramophone logo on. And it's recordings that, that Sinclair Darby has made in Russia and brought back. And it looks like Joseph Berliner was basically pulling a fast He's one. pulling a fast one. And, and was, it was counterfeit. It was you know, breaking copyright agreements, breaking a contract... And the, the UK company discovered that the Berliners are basically pulling the rug from under their feet. So even back then, even at the, in the first year or two of the, of the industry, there was all the shenanigans going on. Lots of Yeah, I think, I think as we go through this, we're going to find Russia. It's yes, a country that is ripe for shenanigans <laughs> at this time, pre-revolutionary Absolutely. Russia. So look, here we are, we're in March 1900, and Fred and Sinclair meet in Germany and get the train over to... Russia, and there's some rather lovely descriptions by Fred, aren't there, in his diary? Of, of first of all, they had they had seven cases of apparatus, bell jars, cranks, spindles, etc., which they had to clear through customs. Anyway, they arrive in Russia on the train, and Fred said this: "The day is beautiful, and the country is covered with a heavy fall of snow. 
and at the different stops en route, the natives are interesting, wrapped up in their heavy sheepskins and bear robes. We would give a gramophone concert at these stops, and the amusement of the natives was great to see. So effectively, I mean, they'd stop at stations and get the old demonstration gramophone out and stick a record on. I mean, it must be mind-blowing. You know, yeah. it's, it, some of these would be peasants, some of, the, some of them would be middle-class people, but none of them would have come, encountered this kind of technology before. It's extraordinary. And they arrive in... Uh, they arrive in St. Petersburg, and he describes the journey with all their equipment. I rode in a sleigh to the station to bring up the luggage. This is after they arrived. All the vehicles are on runners. The ground is frozen, covered in ice from November to April. The neighbor, with the river, the neighbor is, is frozen five to six feet thick. And every winter, an electric trolley line is laid on the ice crossing the river. Uh, the effect of St. Petersburg on a stranger and a southerner is very fascinating. I wanted to be out in the sleigh all the time. How great is that? Culture shock is, is what's yes, going on. Massive yeah. culture. Very exciting. And it's, they, they, they meet... The gramophone company's already got agents set up over there, haven't they? It's so they've got... Yes, the, yes. There's, there's, there's three of them, but, but two of them are significant. One is called Labelle. Yeah. And, and one of them's called Raffoff. <laughs> Interestingly, back to Dr. Kelly, looking at the Sinclair Derby previous visit, yeah. Sinclair Derby's had, had two tasks. One was to set up some recordings in Russia, and he, yeah. made, he did that. And the second was to negotiate the sale of those dodgy records to Mr. Raffoff yeah, and Mr. LaBelle. Yes. So, so these guys were both undercutting the gramophone company and also their representatives in Russia. And it's really interesting that Sinclair Darby's sins are forgotten. He's, he's now part of the gang. Yeah, yeah. And Geisberg and he are now dealing with the two guys that were undercutting. That were undercutting them. Yeah. And they all go out to an opera to try and just check out the... Fred, I think it's fair to say he isn't impressed. They go to a production of an opera called The Life, A Life of the Tsar. And although the voices are good, the chorus is badly trained and the orchestra very much out of tune. The frequent and stubborn applause given, given the soloist by the audience is very annoying and interfered with the pleasure of the, of, the, uh, of the viewer. This is the great fault of a Russian audience. They spoil their artists, make pets of them. Indeed, um, we found for them for this uh, very hard to approach. They expect presents of diamonds and jewellery. So a bit of backsheesh there. So we're yeah. talking about a bit, bit of a corrupt uh, industry here, aren't we? And also, you know, this, this is pre-revolutionary Russia. Yeah. This is probably, our, you know, the, the opera, the, the, the arts of, of that period were funded by the royal family and the, and the equivalent of the oligarchs, mm-hmm. the, the people around the royal family. And I, I guess these uh, performers, these artists, were, were like, you know, trinkets themselves yeah. that, that the role of family and, and the different oligarchs would show off to each other absolutely and so you know you, you bought your um uh, your audience probably wasn't the audience in the concert hall it was it was the oligarchs and the yes yeah uh, and and so that that's probably why they're a bit petulant a bit petulant yeah. so they go out this lot so fred and sinclair here we are in st petersburg with the agents but there's some wonderful quotes about how the agents are kind of at each other's throats aren't they yeah old um labelle and raffoff well, yeah, I mean, this is this is a quote from Fred's memoirs. So this is this isn't this is him looking back, rather than the the diaries that he wrote at the time. And he wrote these memoirs towards the end of his life in the in the forties. Raffoff, he says, would draw me apart and whisper in my ear, "Don't trust Labelle. <laughs> He'd cheat his own father." And then Labelle would take me into a corner and advise me, "Look out for Raffoff. He seduced a girl pupil." and was transported to Siberia. He's only free because of the amnesty of the Romanov centenary. (laughs) 
So they don't trust each other at all. They don't trust each other. But they did They did party, though. The 11th of March, they went out for dinner at a place called the Christofsky, which is a cafe-cum-music-hall. Stayed out till 4am. Um, we arose more dead than alive, says Fred, at 11 o'clock the next day. And then the next day, they went off, uh, they went off to make their first Russian recordings. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's stamina, isn't it? Party well, till four. They're young men. <laughs> they're young yeah. men. They're in their 20s. I, I couldn't do that anymore. But that, that seems to be the, the, they start recording straight away, but, but the recording artists that the um, agents have got lined up for them aren't very good. So not, they, they don't pass muster, do they? No, they try various people, and about a week later, on the 21st, slightly more than a week later, they decide to go and they hunt go, for artists as well. Alone. I mean, remember the pressure they're under to deliver. Yeah. And this trip's expensive. I mean, this would have cost the gramophone company yeah. a lot, a hell of a lot. Yeah, so these, guys, these shady guys don't deliver, so they, they literally go it alone, and Fred wanders the streets, doesn't he? Yeah, well, he goes to opera houses and bars, and he's, he's trying to find people that can sing and, and offer some. And I, they do begin to um, record people. There's a guy called Nevsky, who is a, a kind of comedian and concertina player. He uh, is very popular, and those records go on to sell across Russia. Kamionsky, the baritone, yes. sang a few songs. But this has all been generated by Fred and, and William. Yes, they've done it themselves. And the one they want, of course, is, is, is Chaliapin, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's... Who's this big, big he, Russian singer, I, famous. I have to say, I didn't know a great deal about him yeah. um, until I started reading some of this material. But one of the people who was writing about him on the internet described him as one of the three great voices of the first half of the 20th century. Callas, Maria Callas, Enrico Caruso, and Chaliapin. Wow. Um, I knew the first two. I didn't know Charlie Pan, but he turned out he had a huge career. Died in I think thirty-eight. Had to had a fantastic escape, which Fred helped effect mm. from the post-revolutionary Russia to get out and move to America. And I th- Fred and he became sort of lifelong great friends. But at this point, Fred can't. You know the guy. Chalipan is one of these guys getting all the, the rubies and the diamonds yeah, from, yeah. from the oligarchs and the royal family and will not entertain a conversation with these, these American guys yes. from, from um, with recording it's technology. Why would I need to record myself? How are you? So Fred and Sinclair, are, uh, they must be exhausted, sort of roaming the streets of St. Petersburg looking for... However, they still find time for a night out or two. There's this wonderful <laughs> paragraph in Fred's diary about uh, one Saturday evening, 24th of March, I'll just read it briefly. Saturday evening, after letter writing, we, attired in our frock coats, set out for Pompeii, where LaBelle and Raffoff, the agents, had promised to join us. They didn't show up, but we enjoyed our dinner and the entertainment, especially the dancing by our Russian chorus. I engaged a very popular and good gypsy romance singer also. Returned to the hotel about 3 a.m. So that's, that's the end of March, isn't it? And they're still making records for quite, quite a long time after yeah. this, probably including that gypsy romance singer. Yeah. And then there's another interesting entry on the 6th of April, which is getting towards the end of their time in St. Petersburg. And Fred 
in his diary says, we attended an afternoon performance of the opera Demon yes. by Rubinstein. Rudina, who's, who's a beautiful young soprano, uh, according to him, uh, took the leading role and acquitted herself commendably. Between the acts, we would present ourselves at the dressing room of our beautiful prima donna and congratulate her on a performance of the foregoing act. <laughs> this is the line I love. I told her I wished I was the devil in the last act when he was embracing her. So he's, he's a bit creepy crawly. So many really. questions. First of all, how do they just walk into a dressing room in the interval? I mean, that's, that's ballsy, isn't it? Yeah. Backstage it, pass. Backstage pass. It's a bit pervy as well. Sorry, Fred. But um, isn't it? I wish I was a devil embracing yeah. you. I mean, <laughs> now remember these diaries were written a good 30 years after the event, weren't they? No, diaries were written at the time. And the memoirs were written later. Ah, and I, so, me. so right. this is a di- this is a diary entry. In but, which case, but some bits, some bits of the memories are, f- are through rose tinted glasses. Yes. Yeah. But he did record her, I believe, didn't he? Yes, R- he recorded Redina. her. And in fact, the following day, it looked like they were going to have even more success. This was when things changed, wasn't it? After yeah. the after the uh, what happened then? Then they returned, and then well, the, the following day they got a note from Raffoff, their their naughty um, agent mm-hmm. in the hitherto useless. I, and I've been, I mean, I I think Raboff, Raphoff is Saint Petersburg based, and I think Lebel, Lebel is, is Moscow based. based. So that's why Raboff is in this story quite a lot. Whereas yeah. when you go to Moscow, you see Lebel a lot. But he comes in with news that that they are to prepare to give a recording exhibition before the Tsar's secretary that evening. Let's just let's just let's just ponder that for a minute. Yeah. We're talking about the Tsar of Russia here, Nicholas II. Yeah. They get a message. These two foreigners who are trying to record, literally beetling around St. Petersburg, trying to record anything. They get a message saying, "Come and play." Come and demonstrate the gramophone for the Tsar. Well, for the Tsar's secretary. So I'm guessing what the Tsar's secretary is doing is is interested and seeing whether it's something the Tsar might be interested in experiencing because the Tsar would not have seen a a record player at this point, I'm assuming. I mean, this is a a turnaround in fortunes, isn't it? Yeah, it was a huge opportunity. It's massive. So the next day they take take all the equipment to the, the palace of the Grand Duke Michael in a sleigh, of in course. In a sleigh, which Fred writes about with great gusto. Yeah, I mean, what I love is he says, we passed the guards who examined us suspiciously and we were shown in by a major domo with his snub brush and nose in the air to a corner of a vast salon furnished with chandeliers, tapestries and soft Persian carpets. With bated breath, we set up our modest outfit near a Steinway grand piano. Brilliant. Just after nine o'clock, the company trooped out from the dining room and ranged themselves around our machine. There was His Excellency, His Excellency General Bobrikov. I mean, these are big characters in Russian. He was responsible, this guy, Bobrikov, for the Russification of Finland. Oh, wow. And, and was assassinated in Helsinki in 1904. These were big cheeses in the regime. Uh, he was joined by the secretary to the Tsarina, and Alexander Tanyev, who again was a big character in the, in, in, in the government. And Tanyev's two lovely daughters uh, and his two sons were present, as was their mother. So basically, these Russian dignitaries trooped in, probably in their finery. After a good dinner. After a very good dinner. Lots of vodka. Ranged, them shirts and ranged themselves around the machine. So th- they came in one by one and introduced themselves to me. This is Fred in his memoirs later on. I was amazed and almost ashamed of, of, as having had to come all the way to Russia to hear such flawless English. <laughs> Each of them was ready with an impromptu message for the recording trumpet. So they bought not only a demonstration gramophone to play on, they bought a machine to, to record as well. Now, were these the same machines? Could you both record and play on the same bit of apparatus? I don't think so. Yes. If, 
do you remember when we were looking at the pictures of the Maiden Lane um, studio? Studios. Yeah. You had a, you had a huge horn that connected to the diaphragm with a cutting with style. A cutting style. Yeah. And then there were two mini playback playback machines, devices. It looked like to me. So they would record and then they would make a disc and then they would play it back on the other the other machine. Uh, what was amazing about this trip to the to the palace though, they'd taken with them their etching tank with acid. So when you recorded a disc, it was on a it was on a zinc master, it was covered in wax. You then had to dip it in a vat of acid to burn the grooves into the master disc. They'd taken an etching tank and a, and a bell jar of acid to the to the palace in St Petersburg with them. It's so that within pre, pre-revolutionary Russia, it's crazy. You'd think with the security and paranoia <laughs> of, 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 these of those times. I wonder the, what the, the snub-nosed guards thought of this uh, <laughs> this equipment. So within twenty minutes of recording, these people they could then play back the master disc yeah. to them. I mean. It's extraordinary, isn't it? What, what I love is, is, is from, his mem- uh, from his diaries, this is what he wrote at the time, they served us with tea and fruit and treated us fine. <laughs> fine. And I think all, all of the, um, the, the guests were, were sort of taken aback and, and amused by this new technology. They all, Tanyev turns out he can play the piano and they record him on the Steinway. Yes, he sits on the Steinway, And, and everyone's delighted. So it, it's, it's a success. And they... Hang around waiting for the call. Several days, I think, for this royal yeah. command to come down to record the Tsar. But unfortunately... It just peters out, as, as, as many opportunities in life do. It and in fact, their, their sort of recording trip peters out at that point, doesn't it? They, they, think, they yes. captured some people, they had a chance of the Tsar, it got away, and then they, they've been there, I guess, about a month at this point, yeah. and they decide to head home. So they, I, I imagine they're feeling deflated and a little bit... I mean, imagine getting that close. Yeah, and then nothing, because you know it's a bit like when they were in Rome and they tried to record the Pope. Yes, Th- there's such a you know the market for for hearing the Tsar's voice. You know, the st- would have been huge. people in well, any part of Russia would never have heard the Tsar's voice, Indeed. never have seen him. Indeed, and there would have been a huge market for and it. overseas too. Yeah, so a bit a bit deflated, we imagine. They're sitting in their hotel, but Fred, he's been quite glass half full, isn't he, about this? He says the recording trip had in the end, been a success. They'd captured a rich programme performed by Russian choruses and gypsy singers. So he feels he's got enough. I'm not sure how many recordings they got on this trip. I'm not sure if he says. No. So they pack up, probably have a night out with old Raffoff and LaBelle, don't they? Well, they seem um, to be having a lot of nights <laughs> out. They, of nights they're, out. They're, they're probably exhausted from that. You know, you, you go on a, you know, to a music festival or you go on tour with a band. Yeah. And by about day 10, you're, you know, you're knackered. And they're on day 30. They're on day 30. So they decide to head home, but they go via Warsaw, don't they? Yeah, and, and, and take the opportunity to make some recordings. <laughs> they do, of course they do. Um, I, I, th- I think probably the most brilliant bit of the trip actually happens in Warsaw. Well, the, yes, the it's, mo- it's the it's most unfortunate bit of the trip. Gobsmacking. Do you, and fr- Fred records these in his, his memoirs later. So he, he's actually one interesting thing he says about the Polish artists, they were suspicious of us and made us pay in advance before they sang. <laughs> the artists in Russia were much more trusting. But anyway, they have, they have a week there. They've got a lot of good records. And he's recorded a, a prima donna called Krasinski, yeah, who actually agreed to go to the makeshift studio in there that they set up in the hotel room which yes. is quite an important... They'd set up this studio with all the 
acid, acid in their hotel room. Big horns and all of that rubbish. Uh-huh. Anyway, they, they're going home the following day. We're on the eve of the 20th of March, now, and, 1900. And on Friday night, they decide to, to go to bed. They're probably absolutely cream-crackered. <laughs> Do you want to read out that yeah. next bit? So they're lying in bed in a hotel in Warsaw with this makeshift studio at their feet, at the foot of their bed, probably. At about 2 a.m., Fred says, we were awakened by terrible battering on the door. The porter and three or four others wanted to know what terrible happenings were going on. The room below us was dripping with what might be blood or something deadly and was falling on the face of the sleeping occupant. We went into our lab slash recording studio. I.e. other hotel room. Yeah. (laughs) And to our dismay, found a bucket filled with old acid had sprung a leak and the floor was flooded. This This is extraordinary. The bright red fluid dripped through the ceiling onto the sleeping guest. When his body began to smart, he roused the hotel. I mean, imagine lying in bed... And acid is dripping from the ceiling onto your head. I've got a hole in my head. I've How did that happen? I've got a hole in my head. We had the disagreeable task of sopping it up in our nightshirts. I mean, come on, poor them. What about the poor person who's <laughs> covered in it? And expecting the manager up, up at any moment to pitch us out, bag and luggage. Yes. Brilliant. I mean, the, 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 it actually, serious point, it shows the dangers that they put both themselves and others into uh, in the process of recording, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know... People sort of rail against or belittle health and safety rules, but leaving a bucket of acid in a roof, <laughs> just sitting there above somebody's bed, um, is you know there should be rules against that. There should there be probably rules are these days. <laughs> anyway, they were billed for it the following yeah. Monday. It was a nineteen ruble charge. Well, that's that's the sorry, fourteen thing. rubles for room well, repairs. Fourteen rubles for room repairs. That doesn't sound. There's no mention of the poor guy who's been <laughs> doused in acid. You <laughs> know. <laughs> Bed shirts might have been ruined. <laughs> Deary me. So they returned to London, totally exhausted. But I imagine with with a pretty good haul of recording. Well, he, he's he's happy, isn't he? He's, he's ha- happy with his haul. He says it's he's most, the most far-reaching and successful tour yet. Actually, is what he recording tour. The um, the one person they didn't get. Well, they didn't get the Tsar. They didn't get the Tsar. But that was probably too much to wish for. But they didn't get Shalyapan, this the great Wait, who's um, the one tenor, yeah. uh, who who was. Um, too snooty for them, not for this new technology. Too snooty. At the moment, dot, dot, dot. Da, da, da. They went back. They went back. <laughs> and the following trips were, in many ways, even more bizarre. Yeah. But we'll talk about those in the next, in the next episode. That's it for this week. See ya. This is The Sound of the Hound. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode, please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there, and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artefacts we talk about in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.